My name is Adeladus Kilangi. I teach law at uh, St. Augustine University of Tanzania, in Tanzania, where I'm also currently the Dean of the Faculty of Law. I also serve in the African Union Commission on International Law since 2009, and I'm currently uh, also the President of the African Union Commission on International Law. In uh, this presentation, I'm going to talk about the principle of permanent sovereignty of natural resources in Africa 50 years after its promulgation. Maybe I should state right from the onset that uh, I consider this principle to have reached 50 years since its promulgation because it was in 1962 where the Declaration uh, on Permanent Sovereignty of Natural Resources uh, was uh, concluded. That's General Assembly Resolution 1803. Even though, as I'm going to explain later, uh, this principle had been developed uh, progressively through other resolutions before the 19 uh, 1803 uh, resolution of 1962, and it has also continued to be developed uh, even after 1962. I find it proper to begin by uh, defining the context of my presentation. Um, I am talking about the principle of permanent sovereignty of natural resources in Africa. And uh, what does this mean? The principle of permanent sovereignty of natural resources was developed basically for the whole world, not just for Africa. But uh, my lecture will be discussing the implementation of this principle in the context of Africa. And in the broader context, therefore, it's about, um, first of all, the question of how Africa has contributed to the development of international law on one side, but on the other side, it's about how certain developments in the area of international law uh, have been made in a consideration of Africa, or how certain developments in the area of international law have affected the continent of Africa. And further to that, then how Africa has embraced uh, those developments. Um, in other words, here we'll be looking at uh, how the continent of Africa has applied international law to save her development aspirations. Because in a final analysis, the principle of permanent sovereignty of natural resources is meant to save development ends. And uh, therefore, um, this, will be the, this will be the basis, the center, and the focus of my uh, uh, presentation. May I briefly talk about the principle of permanent sovereignty of natural resources, just briefly. I'm going to talk later about the key milestones through which the principle developed. 
In brief, we could say um, this is a principle of international law that was developed by the international community in the 1950s, 1960s, all the way to the 1970s. Most of the developments took place uh, uh, during that particular time. And the central aim of developing this principle was to try to regulate matters of exploitation of natural resources in the world. So in a way, this was a new emerging area in the, in the, in the field of international law. This was an area where challenges were being noted, and therefore the international community saw the importance of developing a principle of international law that would cater for matters of exploitation of natural resources. The principle was developed, but then I should want to highlight some of the peculiar features of this principle. Because when you mention permanent sovereignty of natural resources as a principle, it can create an impression that, uh, you know, it's a stipulation that you find in one sentence or one line or one section or one article. This is not the case for this principle. The principle is rather a composite. Um, which is drawn from many instruments and documents. The totality of these instruments and documents produce uh, the principle of permanent sovereignty uh, of natural uh, resources. In other words, the principle is descend from the many processes which produced many documents of different uh, categories and status. And then, at the end of the day, uh, then the essence of it is uh, this uh, principle. And just to mention, the principle developed mostly through United Nations General Assembly resolutions, which again is another peculiar way of development of international law because most of the principles of international law as we know and based on Article 38, of the Statute of the International Court of Justice have developed uh, through either treaties or custom or evolution of general principles uh, which have been applied in various states and now they've been made applicable at the international uh, sphere. Or writings of jurists, highly qualified uh, jurists in international law or decisions of international courts and tribunals. But as I've said, this one developed mostly through General Assembly uh, resolutions. And of course there have been questions. If the principle was developed through General Assembly resolutions, does it hold any force of law? Uh, the overwhelmingly uh, response uh, from uh, many international law scholars is that yes, that's the case because uh, General Assembly resolutions reflect the will of states. And uh, the will of states, you know, is one of the things that generate international law through custom. But also, maybe in the realization of this weakness, uh, the principle was incorporated in the two 1966 uh, treaties on human rights, the International Covenant uh, on uh, Civil and Political Rights of 1966, 
under the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights of 1966. Therefore, by including this principle in these two treaties, the principle was elevated to the status uh, of a treaty. Having said that, I would like now to uh, discuss briefly the context in which this principle uh, was developed. And uh, the point is that every principle of international law develops you know, within a certain context. So there could, should be a situation which gives rise to the de development of the principle. There is a situation you know, uh, which shows a need and that need needs a response, needs some action. And usually uh, that action comes in terms of development of a principle. Now, as far as permanent sovereignty of natural resources, uh, you know, developed, the context of it uh, points to, first of all, the phenomenon of uh, colonialism, but actually, it points to what happened after decolonization, when uh, countries that were under colonial, uh, uh, colonial domination became independent. This phenomenon generated concerns both to uh, newly independent states on one side and the former colonial uh, powers on the other side. For the newly independent states or countries, there was a feeling that they had inherited uh, somehow unfavorable and inequitable contracts for exploitation of natural resources in their countries that had been concluded by their former uh, colonial powers. And these countries felt somehow that those contracts had deprived them of the power to, to manage and control the exploitation of resources in their countries. There was also the feeling that there are exist, uh, existed unequal terms of trade that were created by the phenomenon of colonialism, uh, for which the former colonial powers were owners of capital, and of course the industrial base, and then uh, uh, these new independent uh, countries uh, continue to be uh, sources of raw materials and markets. So these, these were the sentiments of the newly independent uh, countries. But then on the other side, <clears throat> for the former colonial powers, there were also concerns. And that these concerns were mainly uh, centered on the wave of nationalizations uh, that you know, took place in the 50s uh, and also in the 1960s. And um, there were feelings that uh, probably international law lacked principles to manage and control this process. Uh, so the process of expropriation, under what conditions should it take place? Um, then the, the issue of compensation, what principles should guide compensation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, in the broader perspective, the whole thing would affect uh, the question of investments, uh, most of which were in these uh, uh, former uh, colonies. So these were the situations. And of course, if you 
investigate further these concerns of two sides, you would clearly see some areas of difference. So the two sides had areas of difference. Um, on one side, there was this demand for raw materials uh, for various uh, purposes on one side. But then there were sentiments of, you know, uh, asserting more sovereignty and control over these resources on the other side. That was one area of uh, uh, difference. The other area of difference between these two sides uh, was the wish to have matters of investment and ultimately, of course, exploitation of natural resources being governed by international law. And this was made by uh, response from the other side which uh, thought that such matters should rather be uh, regulated by national law. So that was the second area of difference. The third area of difference um, was the wish by these newly independent countries to exploit these resources uh, by themselves. But on the other side, there were the feeling that matters of natural resources belong to the realm of interdependence of humanity. And therefore, it's not something that should be left entirely uh, on the, uh, uh, the hands of the countries that own resources. Uh, other countries also uh, uh, ought to, to have a stake in those uh, resources and the exploitation. Now, having said that, uh, we could uh, raise the question, why is the principle, the principle of permanent sovereignty of natural resources important for Africa? There could be some reasons uh, and, and, and several answers to that question. Um, we are going to see later that actually the principle of permanent sovereignty of natural resources was developed to shield developing countries in respect of their natural resources, to give them you know, more say, more ability to control, more ability to determine the use of the, the, and the exploitation of those resources, and more ability to benefit from the exploitation of those resources. And we understand that uh, uh, almost all African countries are developing countries, and therefore, uh, we could say that uh, the, the, the principle, you know, you know, would be intended to benefit uh, the whole of Africa. We should also not forget that the, the principle of permanent sovereignty of natural resources developed as an integral aspect of the principle, or rather, of the right to self-determination. And most of the African countries, actually all of them, except maybe one country, uh, were colonized. And therefore, uh, you know, the, the, the question of self-determination was so pertinent in the context of decolonization. And of course, after decolonization, uh, you know, these countries governing themselves and uh, uh, sovereignty over natural resources being one aspect of uh, the exercise of the right to self-determination. There is also another fact which is pertinent and, uh, you know, which comes into play as we discuss this principle, the fact that the continent of Africa is endowed with a wealth of natural resources. 
But then the sad maybe aspect of it is that uh, the continent has not been able to transform that wealth into uh, improved uh, standard, uh, standards of living for its own people, translate that into development of the continent in terms of infrastructure, education, social services, and the like. And that's why discussion on the permanent sovereignty of natural resources in the context of Africa becomes very, very, very pertinent. Now, having said that, I would want to provide a brief overview of how the principle developed. And as I've said, the principle is not one statement, it's not one article, it's not one statement. It's a composite. It is something that has been extracted from many processes, many documents, many instruments. And what are these? I said before, the principle was mostly developed through General Assembly resolutions. And I would want to quickly um, list the instruments which have, uh, in one way or another, contributed to developing the principle of permanent sovereignty over natural resources. There is General Assembly Resolution 523, Roman 6 of 1952 about integrated economic development and commercial agreements. General Assembly Resolution 626, Roman 7 of 1952, which is about the right to explore freely natural wealth and resources. General Assembly Resolution 1314, Roman 8 of 1958, which contained the recommendations concerning international respect for the rights of peoples and nations to self-determination. General Assembly Resolution 1515, Roman 15 of 1960, which was about concerted action for economic development of economically less developed countries. General Assembly Resolution 1803, uh, Roman eight, uh, 17, of 1962, which now was the key declaration on permanent sovereignty of natural resources. This one is the key declaration uh, on permanent sovereignty of natural resources. And as I spoke at the beginning, uh, the timeline of the uh, promulgation of the principle actually runs from 1962. Then there is General Assembly Resolution 1995, uh, Roman 19. 19, of 1994, which was about establishment of the United Nations uh, Conference on Trade and Development as an organ of the United Nations. Uh, sorry, I think there is uh, an error there should be of 1964, not 1994. Then General Assembly Resolution 2158, Roman 21 of 1966, which again was about permanent sovereignty of natural resources of developing countries. Then um, the two covenants on human rights of 1966 are the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights of 1966 uh, and the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights of 1966. The next is the General Assembly Resolution 2692, Roman 25 of 1970 
which is about permanent sovereignty over natural resources of developing countries and the expansion of domestic sources of accumulation for economic development. The next one is Declaration of the United Nations Conference on the Human Environment of 1972. This one brought environmental issues also in the, uh, in the whole issue of exploitation of natural uh, resources. Then there is General Assembly Resolution 3201 uh, S Roman 6 of 1974, which is about uh, which is oh, a declaration on the establishment of the new international economic order. Then General Assembly Resolution 3202 S Roman 6 of 1974 also which was a program of action on the establishment of the new international economic order. Then there is General Assembly Resolution 3281, 29 of 1974 also, which is a charter of economic rights and duties of states. And then there is the Vienna Convention on the Succession of States in respect of treaties of 1978 and the Rio Declaration on Environment and Development of 1992, uh, which also brings you know, matters of environment to the whole issue of exploitation of natural resources. Those were key global milestones. For the continent of Africa also, there were some milestones which are worthy mentioning. And the first one is the uh, Enactment of the African Charter on Human and People's Rights of 1981, which contains a clause on sovereignty of states over their natural resources. And then in the year 2006, the Great Lakes countries in the Great Lakes region of Africa had a conference which culminated in the conclusion of the protocol against the legal exploitation of natural resources. And after that, we have noted that the African Union uh, has embarked on a number of process, uh, processes and discussions in the area of uh, uh, management and control uh, of natural resources in Africa, which we shall revisit uh, at uh, a later point in time. Now, these were the key milestones uh, through which the principle developed. And as I've, I've said, it's from these key milestones then, uh, we can extract the essential tenets or the key elements of the principle of permanent sovereignty over natural resources. And this is what I want to highlight and now. But I, I, I would like to begin by saying, within the principle, they are both rights and duties. Because the principle, you know, was developed out of discussions, and I could say sometimes the discussions were polarized, but at least the international community was able to reach agreement. Now, within that agreement, there are rights and there are duties which states are supposed to perform. Um, if we begin with the rights, the principle enshrines about four notable rights. 
The first right is the right to own natural resources. And this is basically an assertion of ownership that if natural resources are found within the boundaries of a certain country, then the automatic assertion is that that country owns those natural resources. Uh, as simple as that. The second tenet on the rights is the right to manage and control the exploitation of natural resources that are found within a state's confines. And what does this mean? In the first place, it means that that state has the right to enact rules to manage the uh, exploitation uh, of those resources and also uh, the process of disposition, the process of marketing, etc., etc., and anything that is required uh, uh, you know, to facilitate the exploitation uh, of those resources. And also to regulate matters of capital that would be involved in the exploitation of those uh, resources. The third tenet of the principle in terms of the rights it enshrines is the right to exploit the resources. And this simply means that the state or a country which owns natural resources has a primary right to exploit those resources. But of course, under the other right, you know, of managing and control the exploitation, it can also determine the way those resources can be exploited. It can be through investing companies, can it be through uh, the nationals of the country, etc., etc. But at least the right is guaranteed that should the country want to exploit its resources, then there should not be anything in international law that would preclude it from doing so. And the fourth tenet of the, of the principle in terms of the rights is the right to benefit uh, from the exploitation of uh, natural resources. And the benefits could come through many ways. It could be through taxes, you know, generated from the uh, exploitation of those resources. It could be through uh, facilitating industrial development out of exploitation of those resources. Um, if I could explain this more, like a country would wish to build um, industries that would be based on the utilization of the resources that are available in the country. Um, but also, now, another aspect now has been brought into this perspective, that one of combating illegal exploitation of natural resources. And I would want to explain this more. Um, as I said, this principle emanated from the Great Lakes region th thinking. And this thinking came about because of uh, the, conf the many conflicts that have been experienced in the Great Lakes region. And one of the factors that have fueled uh, those conflicts notably has been the question of uh, illegal exploitation of natural resources by many uh, uh, players and, 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 and factors. And, uh, you know, as a result of that, you know, uh, many conflicts. Uh, have been caused by, you know, by that phenomenon. But it's not just for the Glade Rex uh, region uh, that uh, exploitation of natural resources and especially through illegal means has fueled conflicts. Many parts of Africa as well we know uh, that exploitation of uh, resources, especially by armed groups, have fueled, you know, conflicts. Those resources have been used to finance, you know, armed groups. The resources have been used to, f uh, to finance rebellions. Um, the resources have been, you know, 
uh, used to finance uh, you know, uh, many atrocities that have resulted into violation of human rights, etc., etc. But um, you know, the most important consequence of that such way of exploitation of resources has also resulted into depriving such countries of the uh, income that they were supposed to get uh, from uh, those resources. Now, that was a discussion about the rights enshrined in the principle. Let me also move to the duties uh, enshrined in the principle of permanent sovereignty over natural resources. Um, there are about four duties. The first duty is to use the standards established in international law, especially, especially in matters of investment relating to exploitation of natural resources. Uh, even though we'll come to see later that we have problems in this particular area because uh, uh, principles of investment law at the international level the development of those principles has been a bit problematic. And therefore, you would find that uh, investment, uh, or rather matters of investment, are more regulated at regional and increasingly at national level. Uh, maybe we could call it international level because it's in the form of bilateral investment treaties. And usually bilateral investment treaties you know, involve two countries. So we could say at regional or maybe international level or bilateral level for that sake. And also through contractual agreements uh, which are signed usually by investors and the, the, the countries are involved. But the point here is that uh, all those processes should be informed by existing principles of investment law which are generally acceptable at the international level. Um, on the issue of expropriation, specifically, you know, the principle of permanent sovereignty over natural resources uh, does not stipulate in favor of expropriation and only allows expropriation in very compelling circumstances uh, based on objective assessment and not on subjective and should not be based on individual uh, interests in the state's concern, should be for public interest like security, public good, etc. And on this resettlement, the principle uh, calls for using mechanisms available at the international level. And then also, the last duty is that uh, any exercise, uh, you know, uh, involving the exploitation of natural resources should take environmental protection very seriously. So environmental protection should be considered as an integral aspect of any uh, venture to exploit natural resources. Now, these are the rights and the duties stipulated by the principle, enshrined by the principle. But then, um, these are principles of international law, and as we know, Principles of international law do not automatically apply at national level. They, they have to go through the mechanisms of you know, implementation. And we have theories of you know, monism and dualism, even though scholars now say, well, the differences between the two you know, is becoming more and more diminished. But in any case, um, the principle 
of permanent sovereignty over natural resources to be implemented at national level, it needs frameworks of law. And probably in this respect, mining law, environmental law, investment law are very pertinent. Uh, petroleum law as well, because sometimes petroleum law is not included in mining law. Uh, without forgetting human rights, and I've mentioned environmental law, these are some of the frameworks through which the principle can be uh, implemented at national level. But that's one area of implementation. The other angle could require uh, a programmatic frameworks, development of specific programs to realize some of these tenets. Um, taking into consideration that law does not solve every problem. So some of the problems or some of the issues would rather be addressed through non-legal way or through legal way but also accompanied by programs uh, of action. And finally also there is need for uh, institutional mechanisms. Institutions, you know, for example when it comes to management and control, uh, there should be capable, you know, viable institutions to undertake this task. Um, the principle of permanent sovereignty of natural resources was seen as a very good principle in terms of what it provides for developing countries and developed countries as well. But then I should say that it has not developed without challenges. And some of the challenges that we have within this principle are challenges of interpretation. Are challenges of interpretation. And there are two areas where these challenges are noted. The first area pertains to the question as to who is sovereignty or to whom is sovereignty uh, of natural resources vested? Is it to the state? Is it to the people? Is it both the state and the people? It's a very broad debate and um, international legal scholars, you know, uh, have expressed their views on this. Some say, uh, you know, the right of sovereignty over natural resources is vested in the state. Some are saying, no, it's vested in the people. Some are saying, once you say the state, you mean the people. Some are saying, once you say a state, you just mean the government. And so, there's still debates on this. But it's one of the, one of the uh, pertinent questions uh, which still haunt the principle. And then there is the question of approach or approaches in implementing the principle. If you analyze the principle uh, critically, you would find that it, it embraces various possible approach. The first one is what we can call the nationalism approach, you know, which favors so much state control over the exploitation of natural resources. So strict prescriptions, strict laws, strict controls, etc., etc. But on the other side, you have, we have what is called a resource liberalism approach, which favors, you know, an approach you know, of you know, open door policies, you know, adopting liberal uh, policies towards, uh, you know, uh, specifically, you know, allowing investment in the area of natural resources. 
Uh, and you see, uh, these two camps have been at loggerheads. And um, I understand that uh, some of the scholars have come up with a proposal that probably we should try a third cause, a uh, third approach, that is of trying to balance the nationalism approach and the you know, uh, liberalism uh, approaches and put them together. So there should be some level of control, some level of management, but also there should be uh, some level of opening doors to investment. Uh, so in that way, uh, uh, probably uh, a mid-cause and maybe a proper and a better cause would be pursued and of course uh, results could still be uh, realized. Um, I think I should now zero in to the question of the principle of permanent sovereignty of natural resources uh, in Africa, or the principle of permanent sovereignty of natural resources under the continent of Africa. And here I'm trying to look at how Africa has embraced the principle, how Africa has reacted to the principle, what Africa has done with respect or vis-a-vis -vis the principle. And as I said, this is part of a broader discussion about Africa and international law. How Africa has embraced some of the principles of international law that have been developed by the international community. How has it implemented them? And I would divide the epochs into three. There is the period from 1960 to 1970, so from 60s to the 70s. Then the period from 1980 to, or rather the period of 1980s to the period of 1990s. And finally the period after 2000. So what do we see as Africa's response, uh, Africa's position uh, with regard to permanent sovereignty of natural resources. In the period uh, stretching from the 1960s to the 70s, we note that there was very little reflection of the principle uh, in the, first of all, continental instruments, legal instruments, uh, and here I'm talking about the instruments of the OEU as well as literal reflection of the principle in the national uh, instruments. This shows that the continent of Africa during this time uh, embraced the principle, but it was more politically than legally. Because we find that uh, there are many claims, you know, laid down by the African continent in various fora about uh, asserting permanent sovereignty of natural resources in their countries. But this was not reflected, uh, as I say, uh, in the legal instruments of the continent and in most of the countries. We also noted that at this particular time, the continent of Africa, in most of the countries, they uh, pursued a status approach in the management and control of resources in the sense that uh, in most countries, Resources were placed in the hands of the state. Uh, the state was the owner of resources. Uh, the state uh, was the promulgator of 
rules and principles on the management of the resources. And even in many countries, they even you know, established state mining companies or state companies that you know, were involved in the exploitation of resources. And we also note that generally during this period, the continent of Africa, uh, at least uh, according to the practice in, in, in most of the countries, pursued a resource nationalism approach. Uh, at least in terms of practice, at least in terms of practice. Now, when it came to the period from uh, 1980 uh, to 1990, we find that there is, uh, there is a slight change in a sense that um, this principle is, you know, inculcated within uh, the legal base of the continent. And specifically, we noted that uh, when uh, the African continent concluded the African Charter on Human and People's Rights, you know, this principle was enshrined. So that was a step because at least the principle was included within the uh, legal instruments of the continent. But probably at this particular time also, there was little reflection of the principle in the national instruments of these uh, particular countries. And we also noted that uh, still the continent of Africa took a status approach in terms of uh, stipulating or setting ownership and management and control of these resources. But maybe another important step or change uh, or transformation was the shifting in cause. And, uh, Many states in Africa were embracing uh, the liberalism approach uh, by opening up to you know, foreign investment in the natural resource sector in their countries. So we saw in many countries, um, laws were put to facilitate investment, including foreign investment and investment in the natural resources sector. And we see now a number of contracts were concluded in the African continent in many countries that allowed uh, foreign companies to be involved in the exploitation of uh, natural resources. So this was a change, a slight change of direction. Now, when it comes to the period after 2000, um, we note again some, some changes with regard to this principle. Um, it's continued being made a legal principle. But we also note that the African continent has taken steps within this particular time to put in place mechanisms uh, that would facilitate the implementation of the principle. Uh, obviously, taking uh, the African, the context and the needs of the African continent into consideration. So what are the indicators for what I'm saying? Um, the continued application, of course, of the African Charter uh, which provides for the principle. But um, we also see the conclusion of the protocol against the illegal exploitation of natural resources, uh, which was concluded in the context of the Glade Rex region. And uh, I have alluded to uh, the conclusion of that protocol. But I must say that the conclusion of this protocol was ins an inspiration to the whole continent of Africa as such because it also triggered other processes within the African Union to rethink about the role that the continent should play with regard to matters of natural resources of the continent. And here, therefore, we see a shift because previously 
It's like matters of natural resources were left to each country on its own. But here now we see the continent of Africa is taking deliberate steps at the regional level uh, to put in place measures and mechanisms to make sure that uh, uh, you know, uh, natural resources of the continent are managed well and controlled well. Natural resources of the continent could be uh, exploited by the continent itself. Natural resources of the continent could benefit uh, the continent. Uh, and you see, these are the tenets of the principle of permanent sovereignty of natural resources. And that's why I'm saying, uh, you see now the continent you know, jumping in, putting its weight uh, behind uh, the implementation of this principle. And I should not hesitate to mention some of the concrete steps that have been taken by the continent in that regard. The first is the proposal to criminalize illegal exploitation of natural resources in the continent. Actually, that one has been crafted as a criminal offense. Um, the African Union is thinking of granting criminal jurisdiction to the current African Court of Human and People's Rights, which was also transformed. Uh, the process has not uh, been completed into the African uh, Court of Justice and Human Rights. And therefore, one of the offenses which will fall under the jurisdiction of the court will be to try offenses uh, which, you know, fall within the realm of illegal exploitation of natural resources. So we think this is, you know, a big rip, it's a big uh, development in that regard. The African continent has also developed an African mining vision of recent, uh, uh, as recent as November uh, 2011. And it was through the sectoral ministerial uh, conferences and uh, out of the mining vision the content has also come up with uh, a plan of action for realization of that vision and within that plan of action there are about nine areas uh, which are just uh, worthy quickly mentioning uh, that the plan of action will be dealing with matters of mining revenue it will be dealing with the matters of geological information. It will be uh, dealing with uh, the issue of uh, building human and institutional capacity. It would work on um, addressing the issue surrounding artisanal and small-scale mining in Africa. Uh, because this is one of the areas which are thought to be able or to have the potential to provide employment for millions of people in Africa. So far, up to now, the small-scale and artisanal mining sector in Africa is estimated to be employing something from 5 to 10 million people. Um, then there is the question of governance of the mineral sector. Then there is the question of research and development. Then there is the question of environment and social issues. The question of uh, you know, creating linkages and diversification. Linkages and uh, diversification is about linking mining activities and other sectors of the economy. So that uh, developments in the mining sector, for example, would benefit also other sectors uh, of the economy, like trade, services, etc., etc. And there is the question of uh, you know, improving uh, mining uh, 
or rather putting more emphasis on investment in mining uh, and infrastructure uh, development. So these are the areas uh, which uh, the plan of action uh, will uh, uh, deal with. Um, our discussion was about the principle of uh, permanent sovereignty of natural resources uh, uh, in Africa. And we have looked at the uh, historical development of the principle, and we have also looked at the way the principle you know, was embraced in Africa through the uh, three different uh, um, uh, stages. Uh, as I've said, you have a narrow view and a broader view as you talk about uh, this principle. It's, it's just one of the case studies where you could um, you know, uh, look at the whole question of international law uh, within the African continent. And here we have seen that uh, there have been different ways through which the continent of Africa has reacted to this principle. And we have seen that, uh, you know, uh, originally, you know, uh, uh, the reaction was non-legal, then afterwards the reaction was legal, and afterwards um, uh, uh, we have seen some changes and uh, uh, development uh, in that aspect. But by way of concluding, I would say uh, international law still plays an important aspect in Africa, especially in the development aspect of that uh, process. International law can serve as a very good facilitative mechanism uh, for the development of the continent uh, of Africa under the principle of permanent sovereignty over natural resources, one of the examples uh, that uh, shows that uh, shows the importance of international law in Africa. I wish to conclude my uh, presentation that way.